The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Ephesians 3, verses 7 to 13. It says this. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. It's God's word for us today. All right, since he did mention that I am English, I'm just going to go ahead and quickly get one small piece of logistics out of the way. Um, I'm going to be saying the word Paul a lot today. And just to translate that in your way, that would be Paul. Okay, so just if I don't want to do the whole sermon, it was like, what was he saying about Paul? Paul, I can't I can't say any other way. Okay, so let's just, let's just get right into it. Ephesians 3. So if you've been reading along in Ephesians uh, while in this series, you might notice that Paul, in the beginning of this letter, has been building up uh, this whole time this feeling, feeling of excitement and anticipation with his language. All this talk of long-withheld secrets and mysteries and, um, and hidden plans made before the dawn of time. And my modern mind can't help while actually paying attention to the language but notice that it's got all the language of one of those six-season Netflix series finale trailers. All this language of mysteries being revealed, secret plans and plots, exclamation marks at the end of sentences. At minimum, it's impossible to read these first three chapters of Ephesians without recognizing that Paul, at least, seems quite ecstatic about what he was revealing and reason that his original audience would also be just as excited about these mysteries as well. But then, here I am reading in my 21st century contextualizing goggles on, and I'm waiting for this crescendo of this epic cosmic mystery in our portion of the text when he finally gets to it. And here it is. Here is the mystery hidden since the very beginning of the world. Here it is. I'm going to tell you what the epic vessel for unveiling the wisdom of God to the secret powers in the heavenly places is. This will all happen, wait for it, through the church. And if I'm honest, I couldn't help denying the internal feeling when I read that, that I got to the verse, when I got to the season finale, that it just wasn't what I was expecting. I'm reminded by that horrible ending of the Faithful Followed series, Lost. (laughs) Those of you who watched it didn't make much sense at the end of a long time spent. The adrenaline suddenly stopped when I read The Church, and I started pondering if perhaps the writer had died in season six and wasn't able to finish writing the season finale. And some backup writer or cameraman just took over the writing and just figured out how to end the end of Ephesians 3 and just stuck something in there so the series could get done. And I imagine that some of us, at least, that even though we might not have thought in this entertainment-saturated way, that the role associated with the term church in our mind does not merit this epic build-up that Paul gives it in our text. And even if we read Scripture with the utmost diligence and sincerity... Perhaps in the framework that builds our worldview with which we approach Scripture, 
We unconsciously bypass pondering too long on the conflict images a text like this produces. A layer of fog surrounds it, just dense enough for us to scratch our head and move on. This fact has become for me as late a very scary yet necessary observation when reading scripture, recognizing that my understanding and presumptions often limit the magnitude, the impact, and the wonder of what I actually see in a text. I apologize, I just realized I did not stop my timer, so in about three hours, I'm going to look down and remember I should have started that. <laughs> yeah, our text today is without a doubt centrally about the vocation of the church. It is undoubtedly about us and what we are together. And what I hope to do today in this Advent season, this season of wonder and imagination, is approach the mystery with mystery what has become hurtfully familiar to us because it is indeed a mystery about us, corporately. So if it's all right with you guys, I'd like to stay on this Netflix series theme, since it's out there in our minds now, and you guys are all thinking about the Netflix series you're currently watching. What we're going to have to do is we're going to have to go back a few episodes if we can just look at Ephesians like a series. We're going to have to go back a few episodes in this series and highlight some of the themes leading up to the season finale so that we can, by God's mercy and revelation, share the same excitement as Paul has when he reveals the vocation of the church and what we'll call the season finale. So let's mentally download and replay the following three episodes in our mind. So we're going to go through three episodes. We've got to go back to episode one of season five, a.k.a. Ephesians 3, verse 8, and I'm going to title that The Gentiles. Episode three of season three, you remember that one? It was titled The Master Plan, and then thirdly, after mentally downplaying those two episodes, we'll be able to, I think we'll be able to break down the excitement of episode 10, season 6, the finale season trailer, The Church, where we see the epic vocation of the church revealed. So, let's go straight into section 1, The Gentiles. I'm going to read here, uh, I'm going to read some of the passages again as I do them, and they're out of a, a version called the Kingdom New Testament, so if it doesn't match exactly, don't worry, it's just another version, it just had better pronouns and pronouns and adverbs for me. So in verse 8, we find Paul say this, I am the very least of all God's people. However, he gave me this task as a gift, that I should be the one to tell the Gentiles the good news of the king's wealth, wealth that no one could begin to count. Now, even though Paul is speaking to a mixed crowd of both Jew and Gentiles here, we must note that his emphasis is on the Gentile aspect of the news that he's been given to tell. And I wonder if it's possible that because we are so familiar with seeing the language of Jew and Gentile in the scripture, but not really seeing its cultural relevance in our own time, that we may have continued to miss the deeper implications it contains, beyond merely the ethnic difference. For that reason, I have come to the conviction as of late that it cannot be overemphasized to us as, modern Western, as the modern Western church, that as Gentiles here, I apologize if anyone is Jewish here, then it doesn't include you, but... <laughs> As, modern, uh, as Gentiles here, we have been let into, grafted into, by grace, a thoroughly Jewish story, introduced to a God who was at one point known only to the Jewish people. We have been made into a people whose roots now reach far into the Jewish beginning. Hence, we must retrain ourselves to remember that there was a long Jewish narrative already going on that we have then been brought into. Meaning, if staying in theme, there were like five seasons going on before the director really introduced our characters. Five seasons before Gentiles took on any role of importance. We were at best background actors for entire five seasons. 
Now, I know this all sounds a bit harsh to our delicate and entitled ears, but the New Testament seems to be quite simply unapologetic in letting us Gentiles know that we were mercifully brought in and that the, the unclean was made clean, a wild olive branch mercifully grafted into the true vine, that we were those outside of the fold of God, strangers to the covenant, and in the world without God, left to the destructive pathway of death that we merrily skipped down. Now, why am I emphasizing this particular Jew and Gentile aspect of a text before getting into the message primarily regarding the role of the church? Well, firstly, because that's exactly what Paul does in Ephesians and almost every other letter he does. He does that leading up to this aspect of the church. And because, secondly, it's so vital that we see this emphasis on the separation between the Jew and Gentiles in the build-up of Paul's point to grasping the weight that Paul gives to this really new word, the church. We won't see the weight of what the church is if we look at the church as simply some new religious institution that randomly pops up in the New Testament, completely disconnected from the Jewish narrative that it rises out of. Really, in theme again, it's the same thing, and some of you are going to have to support me in this, it's the same thing as jumping three quarters into a legit Netflix series and watching one single episode of, say, I don't know, season six, where two characters happen to die at a you know, particular wedding, perhaps, and saying after watching that one single episode that you gave up on watching the show because it looked to you as just a bunch of blood and gore with no storyline, and you don't get what all the fuss and hype is about. No, 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 no. For the love of HBO, don't do that. <laughs> Listen carefully. Without the whole long six-season narrative, important things happen and are said that don't have the impact upon us that they should. That leads us to my second section. So, session two, the master plan. We, here we go to verse nine. And here Paul says, My job is to make clear to everyone just what the secret plan is, the purpose that's been hidden from the very beginning of the world in God who created all things. The weight behind Paul's understanding of the church is found in him not seeing it the church as some random new religious cult formed, but rather as the climax of the ancient promises, a mystery waiting to be revealed in the long Jewish story. And this may be shocking to us, but the church really is, to Paul, one of those, oh my God, moments in the series. You guys didn't react to that, so I'm assuming you don't have those moments in the series. When you... Okay. Um, no one saw it coming. It's that part of the story that you just didn't see what was going to happen. It is the coming about of God's eternal plan that he started when he called Abraham out of the land of Ur in the beginning of seasons long, long ago. The reason it's such a mystery to Paul is that this was actually not what the Jews were expecting. As our text says, this was hidden. And perhaps within the Jewish people, the effect of prolonged generational slavery and persecution under those nations kept it from even being conceivable. And that is why we find, more than any other issue revealed in the Scriptures, that the Gentiles, now being part of the people of God, is such an issue to the Jews in Scripture. That the Gentiles, now being part of, of, the, of the ethnic people, this is the ethnic barrier that Paul, more than anyone, anyone, spends more time wrestling through in all his letters. It is what Peter needed a vision of a blanket laid out full of what were considered unclean foods coming down out of the sky just to go to the house of a Gentile. 
It is the issue that Paul and Peter, the two pillars of the church, get into a live rebuke over in regards to refusing to eat at the table with Gentiles. This is no small issue in Scripture. And this is because being Jewish was more than merely an ethnic trait. It was a sacred vocation, a set-apart calling and responsibility amongst all the nations of the world. Israel was a sacred vessel to carry the eternal plan and promises of God. If we are to understand what Israel was, that it was more than just an ethnic people, then we must grasp the underlying narrative guiding the Jewish people. Because as much as it should be the same as ours, I believe we have strayed away from it, and hence, possibly one reason we have to re-engage where Paul is coming from in reading our text. So I'm going to give a quick season summary of the Jewish worldview. The Jewish worldview is holistic. It's creational. God has made the world. Matter, therefore, is good. The creation is good. God's original intention in creation was good. Therefore, he has no intention of abandoning it, but rather restoring it to its original intention. Secondly, humanity is covenantal. Man was made creation's responsible heir, its ruler, its steward. God works through humanity and therefore will work through man to restore his inheritance. And third, the world has multiple spheres. In the fall of man, man has broken the covenant, abandoned his vocation, and separated himself from the presence of God. And the unseen principalities and powers have taken up that role behind the scenes, playing upon the idolatrous natures of men. And this is the worldview good that we must look through when we see God call Abraham and make a promise that through his seed, he would restore the nations. He would restore the intention for creation, that through his seed, the nations would be blessed. And from Abraham, we see this ancient nation of Israel emerge, who is God's vessel to work and carry that promise. And that is the Jewish worldview that Paul is working out of. This is what helps build his excitement. But the reality is the plot had thickened. Israel herself had went awry and showed that she cannot be used to redeem the original intention of creation or carry the promise of blessing as she herself is plagued with the same disease of sin that set all mankind down the path to death. And in fact, she has herself become an obstacle to that redemptive plan. She's become internally, internally focused. She's got a hatred of nations. And I've got to tell you, after being under several nations of slavery, you've got to think Israel was under Egypt, and then they're under the Medes and Persians, and then they're under the Greeks, and then they're under the Romans. That's hundreds of years of, of, of inherited slavery, of being suppressed as a people when they're the promised people of God. You can imagine they might be a little bit cold-hearted by the end of that time towards the other nations, towards Gentiles, towards us. So because Israel, the, the, the nation with his promise, is stuck in its own desire for military vengeance against these Gentile enslavers, who of Rome at the time of Jesus was the primary one, she was infected herself with the same corruption as the nations that she schemed to rebel against. And all the while, the powers and principalities that govern the wayward actions of men from behind the scenes would appear victorious in their war against God's created order and any intention for him to restore it. And that's the cliffhanger we're left with at the end of the Old Testament. That's where season five ends, and it takes a 400-year break. <laughs> it's a long break between seasons. If any of you guys have ever stopped watching a season in October and are waiting a whole year, 
It's a long time. Which brings us to section 3, the church, verses 10 through 11. And here it is, the line that left us all flabbergasted in season 6, episode 10, the season finale. The secret plan that has been hidden is this. And here's Paul. This is it, that God's wisdom in all its rich variety was to be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places through the church. This was God's eternal purpose, and he's accomplished it in Jesus, King Jesus, our Lord. Here Paul, the previous Pharisee, a Hebrew among Hebrews, who he as a Pharisee would have been more zealous about his own people's exclusivity of vocation than any, probably more internally hatred towards the Gentiles as any, but now he's been changed, and here he sits, imprisoned, writing a letter to the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus, this Jew and Gentile, this multi-nation, this male and female, slave and free, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, family of people identifying themselves as nothing more than the people of the Messiah. Followers of that long-awaited and now-resurrected Jewish Messiah at that. The long-awaited king of Paul's people, the embodiment of the God of the Jews. There is this church seated together as equals, as family, sharing all, caring for all, as brothers and sisters, sharing the bread that represents the Messiah's body and the wine that represents his blood, and defying the world's most powerful empire. And they're defying them not by warlike revolution or plotting schemes of assassinations, but rather just by their being. Their being what an empire with more power and might and fear could ever accomplish. Caesar would have loved to have had all the nations, Pax Romana, at peace, sitting, everyone equal. Of course, he wouldn't have wanted everyone equal, but that's what you sell as your sell pitch. The nations would have wanted this and tried for this and strived for this, but all they end up doing is killing people and, uh, and minimizing people to make sure the elite stay on top. And here, this ragaband group of people have formed something that the nations have been striving to do for centuries. And in this, he is seeing, Paul is seeing, even from the prison cell, the wisdom of God being revealed to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. He sees humankind born again on a new premise. He sees a promised kingdom start to grow right under the noses of the most powerful empire the world had known. And behind them, the dark unseen powers and principalities in the heavenly places. He sees Jesus enthroned in a world by a people submitting to his kingship. He sees a people liberated from being at the whim of those unseen powers who are once slave to them. He sees the beginning of the restoration of the purpose of creation. He is not simply seeing a nice, polite gathering of decent, moral folks meeting to sing weekly. As much as there is nothing wrong with that, he is seeing the beginnings of new creation. The true king is beginning to reign on the earth. The wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places because they have had mankind in their grip for the longest of time since Adam fell. They have had, they have been under, had them under the ruler of the power of the air, as Scripture says, walking according to the course of this age. They have, the, the principalities have been the unseen force behind empire after empire, tyrant after tyrant, war after war, the destroyers and tormentors of men. And this is why we see such demonic activity highlighted in the scripture. Not because of some obsession the writers had with the supernatural, 
rather because they are being, the principalities are being exposed, uncovered, and expelled because something new is happening. Yet in Jesus' death, the principalities would have seen to regain their reign and killed the concern. Yet, now, by the death and resurrection of the Messiah, they now see, the principalities now see, there was, that, that that was actually the cause and the means of this new humanity to be birthed, not under their power. This new community reflecting the beginning signs of new creation, the powers feared, and of an age to come where humans are becoming more human, where the principalities and powers no longer have any place. This is the secret plan that was always coming. This is the fulfillment of what God started when he called Abraham out of the land of Ur, when he called Moses from the burning bush, and when he called Peter and Andrew from the fishing boat. So to wrap this up in some practical conclusion, nations and ideologies try to build utopias. They try to join ethnicities. They try to establish peace and end war to establish, as I mentioned earlier, the Pax Romana, as Rome called it, the peace of Rome. But led by the dark principalities and powers whispering behind the scenes, these nations and empires only end up being used for more destruction as they have nothing in themselves to make for true peace, for true reconciliation. They are but puppet kings in the hands of powers and principalities, cleverly playing upon the impulses of people. However, those nations are to look at the church and see the ethnicities reconciled. They are to see the separate classes and socioeconomic groups humbled as one before their king, giving up the idol of wealth and prestige in light of something greater and richer. They are to see them singing, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, thou mine inheritance, now and always. They are to see a new way of being human. They are to see a glimpse of a new age, a new creation, They are to see the very thing that they have strived for in all the wrong ways. And in that, they are are to the wisdom in God's hidden secret plan that he performed and fulfilled, fulfilled in the crucified and resurrected Messiah. The weight of what we do and becomes, become points towards the true king of the earth, a king worthy of allegiance. Hence, our vocation to the church is no small vocation yet it is made up of a million small vocations, a million small actions by a million humble people, an engaged people, a caring people, a worshipping people, a secret people, the people of the Messiah, the people of a new creation. But I'll give this warning out there as as I get ready to close. It is as simple as this, church. If we forget or neglect this vocation, if we don't see what we really are, if we, see, if we minimize what we are in this world, the nations suffer. If we neglect to see the responsibility of our own vacation, then the nations look within for their own wisdom and they fall whim to the principalities and gov- powers that have governed them for centuries. They just replay the same story and the same story. Just to give you one historical example from the negative, um, there was a strong, there is strong historical rev- evidence that the church in its various denominations in the 1800s in America was unable to reconcile its differences on the issue of race-based slavery before the Civil War. And it is said by some who have studied that period of time that the Civil War itself was in fact the outplaying by the state externally 
of an issue that the church could not reconcile within. Listen to the words of abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison in 1837 in response to, a, to an article. He says this, Our doom as a nation is sealed. The day of our probation has ended and we are not saved. The downfall of the republic seems inevitable. The corruptions of the church, so-called, are obviously more deep and incurable than those of the state. And therefore, the church, in spite of every precaution and safeguard, is first to be dashed to pieces. The political, political dismemberment of our union is ultimately to follow. And listen, he is not blaming the church for not acting like the state when forcing laws or becoming its own military force to take action. He is simply stating that the nation was consciously or unconsciously looking to the church for wisdom, to see what light, uh, so what light, to see what light people of new creation would shed. It tuned its gaze in this troublesome time to the city set on a hill, to see what its stance and what it spoke to the unseen powers and principalities. And when it found there nothing but division and corruption and the same greed of men, then he was sure that the nation itself would manifest its only ugly demise soon afterwards. Now, I know you'll hear all this talk about the church, and you'll do what I did. You'll look at your own failings within, your flawed character, and you will examine your experiences everything, in everything that is, has been named the church, every person, every hurt, and you will look at the past and what was done in the name of the church, and you will look at the state of the world, and it will rob you of your hope and your ability to believe the painting that I am arguing Scripture is painting in regards to the church's vocation. However, I want to compel you in this season, in this time in life again, to believe the Scripture with me, to reason that, that, there would be, that there would be all the warfare in the world over what we are. It only makes sense. The vessel that God would use in the world, there would obviously be principalities and powers warring against it, demising its view, demising its image. But I want you to compel you to have hope with me, to trust God and our King and the Spirit with me. Our passage is very clear. The church has been a secret woven in the storyline from the beginning of the season. Meaning this, the church was not a plan B or a sudden change of script, an idea thought of in the midst of the series. No, the author started the storyline with it in its original intention, but kept it hidden for the first five seasons until the right time. Until the time, though it, is, so though it appears to be a new introduction to the scene, it was always coming, and now it is here. We are here. We are to be, as the church, as God's people, as new creation people, a continuing statement to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places of God's wisdom, of God's unseen victory and defeat of them, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And every generation must rise up to this calling in, the, in its own cultural context, despite the victories and failures of the generations before it. We must again imagine what the church could and must be. We must again, with hope and trust in the word and the power of the spirit and our resurrected king, we must again imagine us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.